everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Ellen Bayer. I'm Kathleen Haddad. So as usual, tons happening in the health policy universe this week with congressional leaders still trying to hash out the size and shape of the budget reconciliation bill and where they might find a compromise. But that's not all. Uh, It's been a big week at Health Affairs, too. That's right, Leslie. The big news this week at Health Affairs is the release of our October issue, which has a special focus on the topic of perinatal mental health. And we're recording this on Thursday, October 7th. And as Leslie just pointed out to me before we got started here, is that this Sunday, October 10th, has been designated by the World Health Organization as World Mental Health Day in order to raise awareness of mental health issues around the world and mobilize efforts to support mental health. So I guess we have perfect timing. Our October issue has a great collection of 12 articles on perinatal mental health and its implications, and together they make for a really deep dive into a critically important topic that for many years just really didn't get the attention that it deserved. And first of all, before we go any further, I just wanted to thank our very generous funders who made the issue possible. They are the California Healthcare Foundation the Perigee Fund, and the Zoma Foundation. Before we get into the specifics, I I just want to take a step back and reflect and recognize that perinatal mental health is more than just a policy issue. It's really a deeply personal issue that touches the lives of pregnant people and parents and children in really profound and lasting ways. And in the past, there's just been often been a stigma attached to perinatal mental health conditions that unfortunately has prevented many people from talking about the issues and addressing them in a timely way. Um, But as the research shows, I'm just not paying enough attention to mental health issues during pregnancy and the postpartum year can and too often tragically does have consequences that are not only devastating but, but fatal. So that's why we feel like it's so important to really shine a spotlight on the issue and talk about it in the pages of Health Affairs and on this podcast and in our virtual event space. Yeah. And Ellen, I just wanted to kind of react to what you said. I think we were chatting right before the episode. And, um, you know, in so many ways, I think we've been conditioned to really tiptoe around mental health. And as you said, we tend to look at it as a very personal and sensitive subject. And I think we've gotten a little bit better in terms of uh, better and more comfortable in terms of normalizing these conversations, but it still feels like there's this special language, you know, or this um, these code words that we use for talking about mental health and, um, you know, dismissing postpartum depression. We, we do it all the time. We say, oh, you know, it's just the, it's just the baby blues. Um, and so I, I, I don't have kids, um, but I, but I know plenty of new moms. And I think that this is a period that just um, I agree with you. It doesn't get enough attention, um, even though it's really important for good health. So Kathleen, I wanted to bring you into the conversation because you were the lead editor on this issue. And so um, big kudos to you. Um, you were really instrumental in kind of overseeing this process and making sure the issue came together from start to finish. And we've talked a little bit about this before, you know, kind of what it takes to assemble a group of papers around a given topic like this, but would just love it if we could maybe pull back the curtain and, you know, have you tell everyone how a project like this comes about and and maybe why it's so important. Sure. Um, thank you, Leslie. 
We, um, as editors at Health Affairs, do a lot of um, policy research as well. So we're aware of what the major issues are and what we should present. So um, about a year or more ago, it became clear that um, this was a topic that needed attention, perinatal mental health. While uh, white women have uh, done fairly well in terms of perinatal health in general, minority women have not, and the disparities have grown. And so there's a a major concern in uh, Congress and among others, but there's just not enough movement. So we did this issue, we, we, with the help of funders, put together a planning committee, a planning committee of experts throughout the country. We, uh, they're very, very, very important to the process, then develop what the major topics should be in our issue. We had over 100 um, uh, abstracts submitted. We chose 12, though there are some related papers in the issue in addition to the uh, 12 that are officially in this cluster. They cover perinatal mental health in terms of generally two years around the time of birth. Um, And these illnesses associated with perinatal mental health disorders include depression and anxiety, the major serious mood disorders. It can also include bipolar disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and substance use disorders. And many of these, some uh, sometimes in many cases, this these are co-occurring. I should point out that the one of the um, two overview papers that we uh, published, one by Adrian Griffin and her co- Kay Matthews and colleagues, um, talks about how it lays a good foundation for what the nature of the problem is. About eight hundred thousand people a, uh, a year are affected. Um, and one in, that's one in five pregnant people. Um, usually the peak onset is about three to six months uh, postpartum. The individuals who have a personal uh, at increased risk are those who have a personal family history of mental illness or lack social support, or they may have experienced a traumatic birth previously or had a sexual uh, trauma. Uh, also, uh, another risk factor is having a baby in the neonatal unit, um, intensive care unit. There are uh, social determinants that predict who might be more at risk. Those include um, lack of lower education, lack of access to healthcare, economic instability. Even the neighborhood, community, and social context can affect um, who is at risk. Also, we should be aware that the pandemic fueled a threefold increase in serious mood disorders. So it became worse, as did many conditions over the past several years. But we probably do need to make the point that the problem is, is that not enough women, um, are, all women are supposed to be screened, not nearly enough women are screened. And so it goes undiagnosed and untreated. So Kathleen, as you were saying, I mean, these are really complex, longstanding problems. So what are some of the barriers that are making it so difficult to, to move forward on these issues? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. We have an excellent paper by uh, Jennifer Moore and colleagues, and uh, it talks about how difficult it is to screen, diagnose, and treat people with mental health. The United States Preventive Services Task Force uh, requires or recommends with strong evidence that all women who give birth should be treated um, or screened for depression, and they aren't. 
Not many of them are, in fact. And when it happens, it doesn't happen very carefully, and often nothing is done with it. This is particularly a problem for low-income women and for minority women who have less access to care and have faced barriers, um, racial inequity barriers in the healthcare system. Um, even when women are screened and treated, there are um, not enough uh, healthcare providers who are educated in perinatal mental health. They, uh, so there's limited capacity to treat, refer people, or follow up. And then, and of course, there's the stigma around mental health that still exists, especially for pregnant uh, people who are supposed to, in our society, be so overjoyed. And um, But there's a huge, huge change in life that occurs. And then some women are, uh, um, uh, minority women uh, are also, are particularly are concerned that child protective services or immigration enforcement would get involved. And so there's um, a barrier there to uh, be able to trust that you're going to be treated for your illness and be able to heal. Good to know. I mean, that, that overview paper really does uh, help help set the stage and, and give some of the background that's that's really needed to understand these issues. So one of the research papers that really caught my eye was one by Susanna Trost and so several of her colleagues at the CDC and UMass Medical. And they looked at findings of what's called maternal mortality review committees, which is something that I, I hadn't heard of before reading the paper, but they ex these committees exist at the state and local level, um, and they're made up of people with different professional backgrounds. And what they do is they look at pregnancy-related deaths that happen every year, and they make a determination on each one about whether it was preventable. And they look at the different factors that contributed to, to the death, and they make recommendations on how to avoid pregnancy-related deaths in the future. So in their study, they looked at pregnancy-related deaths from 2008 to 2017, and what they found was really striking. About one in nine or 11% of pregnancy-related deaths had a mental health condition as an underlying cause. And when they looked at preventability, they found that 100% of these deaths were determined to be preventable. And over 60% of the deaths were by suicide. And over 70% of people with pregnancy-related mental health deaths had depression. And more than two-thirds had past or current substance use. So the authors go on to highlight uh, a number of recommendations uh, that include treating mental health conditions as part of routine obstetric care, uh, doing a better job of coordinating care across the silos of, in our healthcare system among obstetric and mental health and substance use providers, and also trying to make sure that people get more of that personal touch in uh, sort of handoffs between health, between parts of the healthcare system, so not just get a piece of paper with a referral, but really to get kind of that hands-on help to make sure that they get the follow-up care they need. Um, but what I thought that the Tross paper and many of the other papers in the, in the issue show is that we really need to get creative here and think not only outside the box to, to address these issues, but also to look at models in other countries. And the Leading to Health paper that we have at the top of the issue gives an example of this kind of program outside the U.S. Could, that could be a really interesting model as we think about a path forward. 
It's by April Demboski, and it tells a, a, a real-life true story of a woman who suffered from postpartum psychosis who was treated in what was called a what's called a mother and baby unit in South London and to get long-term inpatient treatment for uh, for mental health for for mental health conditions at the same time as they bond with their new baby and to continue getting follow-up care after discharge. And these kind of programs are considered the gold standard for inpatient psychiatric care for new moms in England. And they are also operating in France, Australia, Belgium, and India. And the approach sounds like common sense, but really we don't have these kind of programs widely available in the U.S. And there have been some limited efforts in the past decade or so to set up women-only perinatal psychiatric units that have some similarities to this program. But certainly most women in this country don't have easy access to them. Yeah, and I was reading this month's Narrative Matters this morning, and it's one of those pieces, you know, I think that just really moves you. I found it so powerful, and it's by Kara Zivin, and it's called Perinatal Mental Illness Nearly Ended My Life. And I won't go into it because I think um, you'll be able to hear from Kara tell her story on the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast series, but she writes about being a researcher and also about being a survivor of mental illness. And she's an advocate too for getting more of these perinatal psychiatric units for mom and baby in the U.S. Um, but again, you know, it's just, it's a remarkable and and really personal story. And, um, you know, it, as you can probably tell, it's just sticking with me here as we've been talking. So all of the research that we've been highlighting and all of the papers in this October issue include a set of important policy recommendations, Kathleen, but that also leaves me wondering, you know, where do we go from here? Well, the Jennifer Moore paper and the um, Adrian Griffin papers outline a beautiful set of policy solutions to these problems. And the good news is that some of those elements are on the table legislatively in Congress right now. Some of those include expanding or creating the first federal benefit for up to 12 weeks of paid medical leave for new parents, creating a a path to Medicaid expansion in the 12 states that haven't done so, and increasing the uh, postpartum or post-pregnancy Medicaid benefit from two months to 12 months in all states. Now it's only in those states who choose to do so. So there's good news. We can move forward on this. That's great. And I think uh, I think that's about all the time we have for now. So just want to say thank you guys for uh, joining me and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Thanks. All right. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and subscribe to Health Affairs This Week wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, guys.